Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. Today's episode features a conversation with the leader of a contemporary Gnostic church, Neo-Gnostics. While this interview does help to reveal some of the politics, practicalities, and exoteric beliefs of modern Gnosticism, I wanted to take a moment before we got into that conversation to outline the origins of Gnostic thought in contemporary occultism to put contemporary Gnosticism in context. I am your host of The Alchemical Actors and this podcast, Occult Confessions. My name is Dr. Rob C. Thompson. Modern Gnosticism, or Gnosticism in Modern Occultism, or Neo-Gnosticism, it goes all the way back to the 18th century, when the Bruce and Eskew codices were recovered. For the scholar April D. DeConnick, it is the recovery of lost Gnostic texts that leads to revivals in interest in Gnosticism. The Askew Codex, A-S-K-E-W, was originally acquired by a doctor and book collector. His name was Anthony Askew, and then sold to the British Museum in 1785. The Askew Codex contains the Pistis Sophia, which was a text relating what Jesus taught after his resurrection, and was the fullest direct articulation of Gnostic thought for scholars to study through the next century and a half. What I mean by Jesus after his resurrection is that some Gnostics believed that Jesus remained on earth for 11 years after his death, and after his resurrection, that is to say, conveying secret teachings to his disciples during that time period, secret teachings that did not jive necessarily with the teachings of the Orthodox or Catholic Church. These teachings formed the core of the Gnostic lessons in the Pistis Sophia. The Bruce Codex was purchased by the Scottish travel writer James Bruce, both codices named for their the purchaser, really. Uh, and this was while he was their, their Western, white Western purchaser, I guess I should uh, specify. Because James Bruce, the Scottish writer, was in Egypt when he purchased this book. It contains the book of Jew, J-E-U, and a book called The Untitled Apocalypse. These texts, in, these codices, informed 19th century writers' views on Gnosticism. Uh, perhaps most importantly, a guy called C.W. King, King's The Gnostics and Their Remains, first published in the 1860s, was Helena Blavatsky's main source of information about Gnostic thought. So let's talk a little bit about King, because as soon as Blavatsky picks him up, he becomes a major source for modern occultism. Anything Blavatsky picks up becomes a major source for modern occultism, although probably you haven't heard of King before. So C.W. King contends that he is the only writer in English to attempt to cover the top of no, uh, topic of Gnosticism, apart from a guy called Dr. Walsh, who wrote an essay on coins, metals, and gems as illustrating the progress of Christianity in the early ages. Now, naturally, an essay on coins, metals, and gems is hardly a Gnostic-focused work. Walsh, uh, in King's terms, largely dismissed the Gnostics as heretics, and this is the error that C.W. King attempts to remedy in his work, his Gnostics and their remains. Not so much in terms of arguing for Gnostics' orthodoxy as for the value and meaning of the Gnostics' religious system. King is trying to say the Gnostics are important and worthy of study unto themselves. 
the relatively recent discovery of the Pistis Sophia relative to King's publication of the Gnostics and their remains um, gives King the opportunity to examine Gnosticism from a firsthand perspective, as opposed to reading between the lines of its detractors, which, as we mentioned in our history episode on Gnosticism, was frequently uh, was, was how a lot of, of our understanding of Gnosticism came forward. King, in a line of thought that would clearly appeal to Blavatsky, identifies Eastern religion as a powerful influence on Gnosticism. King says that the seeds of the Gnosis were originally of Indian growth, carried so far westward, westward by the influence of that Buddhistic movement which had previously overspread all the East from Tibet to Ceylon, was the greatest truth faintly discerned by Jacques Matter, but which became evident to me upon acquiring even a slight acquaintance with the chief doctrines of Indian theosophy. King, after his predecessors writing in other languages like Jacques Matter, also discovered hints of Zoroastrianism, Egyptian occultism, and astrology in Gnostic thought. So just to clarify, I, I wanted, I'd said that King was the first, or one of the first, he identifies himself as, as the first to do a serious study of Gnosticism in English, but there were other scholars in German, French, who were exploring Gnosticism. It, but it wasn't a topic that was being widely explored in 1860, or by 1860. Blavatsky then became one of the first major occultists to popularize Gnostic ideas drawing on King, particularly her Gnostic take on the story of Adam and Eve. Blavatsky viewed the Gnostics as consonant with the theories and ideas of her beloved Hindus. She argued that the Pistis Sophia belonged to a Brahmanic tradition. Blavatsky said, His gnosis was that of exoteric and ritualistic dogma, of dead-letter orthodoxy, while the wisdom which Jesus, an initiate of the higher mysteries, would reveal to them, the Gnostics, was of a higher character, for it was the fire wisdom of the true gnosis, or the real spiritual enlightenment. One was fire, the other smoke. Uh, so in, in what she means there is that Gnosticism was fire and orthodoxy was smoke. In the Upanishads, Blavatsky contends, the word fire means in these allegories both the self and the higher divine knowledge. So for more on this, I, I do recommend you go check out uh, particularly my episodes on Blavatsky and the Secret Doctrine, uh, which I believe is season five. So, if you haven't listened to season five, uh, go ahead and have a listen back. Uh, having heard our stuff on Gnosticism now, our, our history of Gnosticism, and, and even some of what I'm talking about now, and what we'll discuss in this episode, um, and, and our interview with Lynn Short, you can go back and, and see how Blavatsky informed neo-Gnosticism, or how ancient Gnosticism, through King, informed Blavatsky. Anyway. At the time Blavatsky was finishing her secret doctrine, the Pistis Sophia had only been translated into Latin. It was Blavatsky's own personal secretary, the scholar and sometime theosophist G.R.S. Mead, who would translate the document into English. Mead served as the general secretary of the Theosophical Society. He actually gave the eulogy at Blavatsky's cremation and was the editor of the Lucifer, also the Vahana, and the first editor of the Theosophical Review. Because, uh, after Blavatsky's death, uh, along with uh, Annie Besant, uh, it was Mead who transformed the Lucifer into the Theosophical Review, uh, a revamped version. Uh, that Mead himself, as I'm saying, was responsible for changing. 
Mead left theosophy in 1909, just uh, since we've covered so much of, of the history of theosophy, over the controversy created around Annie Besant's choice to reinstate Charles Ledbetter to the society. That's a story we told specifically in our Ledbetter episode. But, but just to give a brief overview, Ledbetter had been accused of encouraging masturbation and engaging in inappropriate behavior with young male theosophists. As I said in that episode, uh, the open secret of Ledbetter's sexuality made these accusations somewhat suspect, uh, but insofar as Mead suspected the society was promoting child abuse by allowing Ledbetter back in, Mead was certainly within his rights for leaving, so I, I guess there's good arguments on both sides, and it speaks to his moral character. Uh, ultimately, what I say on the Ledbetter episode to clarify is that, is that we just don't know what happened in the in the privacy of, of uh, Ledbetter's engagements with these young men. We do know that he promoted masturbation, uh, which certainly is not, uh, at least in the estimation, the, the morality of this particular podcast, a bad thing. Uh, but whether or not there was inappropriate behavior with the, the children, uh, the young boys, um, we just don't, we can't say. Um, but in Mead's case, Mead concluded that yes, or at least the the possibility was enough for him to say that uh, Ledbetter should not be readmitted. And so when he was, G.R.S. Mead quit the Theosophical Society, along with many others. It splintered the, the organization. Mead was a fairly prolific author and completed his translation of the Pista Sophia in 1896. Uh, his book before that was actually on Simon Magus. So Mead spent a, a quite a bit of time researching and writing about Gnosticism uh, through his relationship with Blavatsky. I guess it's conceivable that some of Mead's scholarship informed Blavatsky, uh, but Mead was publishing largely after her uh, death and after her completion of Secret Doctrine. However, uh, this is not to suggest that Mead didn't have a significant influence on the development of occultism. Um, although he didn't directly inform Blavatsky's writing, he did, by the way, edit Secret Doctrine, um, but he didn't inform her writing uh, otherwise with his Gnosticism or his, his Gnostic scholarship. But his Gnostic scholarship did directly inspire Carl Jung and his theories on Gnosticism. Going back to the scholar, the modern scholar DeConnick, she suggests that Blavatsky and Jung were perhaps the two most significant popularizers of Gnostic thought before the New Age. Blavatsky and Jung made Gnosticism a significant topic of occult thought, leading up to the blossoming of new religious movements beginning in the 1960s. The Nag Hammadi texts also contributed significantly to the role Gnosticism played in this moment in religious history. Jung wrote to Freud in 1912 about his interest in Gnosticism. Jung believed that the Gnostics' inner exploration was a form of proto-psychoanalysis and argued that they presaged a transpersonal form of psychology. Patrick Marsolik argues that Jung's interest in alchemy stems from the shortage of Gnostic texts available before the discovery of the Nag Hammadi texts. The Young Institute was actually responsible for an early translation of the Nag Hammadi texts in 1955, just a few of the texts, not the whole thing. Before this, Young made reference to Mead's work, G.R.S. Mead, uh, the Pista Sophia, and explored the subject of alchemy as a kind of adjunct to Gnosticism in the absence of, of more texts to explore. He wrote his cryptic Seven Sermons of the Dead using the pseudonyms Philemon or Simon Magus and Basilides prominent Gnostics. So he used the names of Gnostics uh, in his Seven Sermons of the Dead. He actually only published his Seven Sermons privately and distributed copy copies personally to friends and family. It wasn't made public until after his death in 1962 as an appendix to his popular memoir. 
The seven sermons were a kind of revelation stemming from Jung's exploration of his own unconscious, uh, which was collected most famously in the Red Book, uh, and, but the Red Book was kept unpublished in any form until after his death. Yeah, maybe at some point uh, this podcast will get around to exploring Jung's occultism. I, I think it's certainly worth a deep dive unto itself. Anyway, Blavatsky and Mead laid the groundwork for Jung, whose most occult and esoteric work arrived just before the dawning of the Age of Aquarius and the translation of the latest Gnostic text discovered in Egypt. Going back to our interview with ex are member Lynn Short, modern Gnostic churches often make reference to Blavatsky because they owe their theology at least in part to her. As you'll hear in today's conversation, Aleister Crowley also has an influence. The inversions of Gnosticism, which turned Orthodox Christian mythology on its head, had a natural appeal for Crowley the Beast, uh, and he wrote a Gnostic mass conceived for a Gnostic Catholic church. Uh, he frequently used the word Gnostic as a kind of brand for uh, his, his particular Thelemic theology. Anyhow, uh, I just wanted to set the stage in this way for our conversation with uh, the neo-Gnostic uh, church today, um, which without further ado, uh, I will go ahead and, and let you get on into. Please enjoy. We, the members of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. My name is Dr. Rob C. Thompson, uh, here with another interview special today. Our producer Discordia, Luke Kinneman, is, uh, is right here with me. Luke, how's it going? Yeah, it's going well. You know, I'm here. It's a happy day, and it's I've got an day. angry toddler. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just a regular day, man. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Toddlers come in many shades and and moods. So, uh, Luke, wh- what are we talking today? We're talking Gnosticism again, but uh, a different flavor of Gnosticism, yeah? We are, and we have uh, two unique guests who are going to be delving into those different flavors of Gnosticism with us. Uh, first, we have Paul Joseph Rovelli, the founding director of the Gnostic Church of LVX, or Light, with over 25 self-published books on Amazon, many found online for free as well. He boasts the first and only fully owned modern Gnostic church on the continents of the Americas. The church is overseen by the spiritual lineage that he heralds for the AA, for context, that is the Astron Argon, or the Order of the Silver Star. And with its magical lodge, the AOM, the Archodoxal Order of Magi, it is fully dedicated to the goddess referred to by the ancient Gnostics as the Thought of God. Paul, hello. Hi there, how are you? Doing fantastic. Cool. Joining Paul today, we have Joseph D. Oliveira, student of psychology, religion, and the occult, as well as the social media coordinator for the Gnostic Church that uh, Paul is running. Hello. Well, gentlemen, thank you for joining us today. Paul, could you give us a quick primer on what it is that you preach? Uh, We brag about a modern Gnosticism. And, you know, you could say we rely on everything from Ralph Waldo Emerson to Carl Gustav Jung uh, for influences. And, and then, of course, the whole concept of Thelema, the Preternatural and Holy Books. And we weave in a variety of things if you want to look at the clerical side of the issue. But individually for our congregants, it's easier to say that we are facilitating genius in each other. 
So it really comes down to, you know, what is genius? And we can go through all of that if you like. Yeah, let's get a few few variants of genius. I came across uh, something that was profound, and they were talking about genius in a very natural way. And a woman, an older woman, was complaining because all she did was raise her family. And somebody pointed out to her that that is her genius. You know, it doesn't matter that she was in some religion that she now felt, you know, uh, was inadequate in one way or another. Uh, you know, she comes to this gnosis and, wow, it's too late for me to do all these Gnostic practices and this and that and say, but wait a minute, you know, part of it is about rumination and going back over your life and see what it is, uh, what talent uh, motivates you um, and what seizes your imagination. You know, as Campbell said, follow your bliss, you know, do what thou wilt, find the true inner self of who you are. And that's where you're going to find your genius. And you have to do that no matter uh, what the outer world really tells you you should be doing. You know, there's other conditions on that. We could talk, we could take a whole sidebar into other conditions. But really, very simply, if you come into our church, you know, we want to celebrate what whatever it is that you have and that you do and what you're making of your life. And you come once a month to our service, whether you attend online or in, in person, and you kind of get to recharge spiritual batteries after, you know, the world has beat you up for the last month. So services are, are monthly. What, what is that? What's that look like? What will be experience? Um, we do something called the Rosicrucian Mass. And the Rajakrusha Mass includes uh, several key elements. Uh, there's a, a, a call and answer with the congregation. Uh, we affirm certain virtues. Uh, we have um, the doctrine of the four yods, which are four other sets of virtues, which shall we say, um, uh, transcendentalist uh, scientific information you know, just in Kant's idea of the transcendentalist thought, um, you know, working towards some kind of idealism. And these are generally quotes from Blavatsky mixed in with some stuff from Castaneda and, and ideas on intent and integrity, that kind of thing. So there's a sort of a virtue teaching, but without really, you know, uh, adopting a code. We don't really have any code of ethics, virtuous response, uh, good and bad deeds, whatever. You evaluate that for yourself. That's Gnosticism. So tell me a little bit more about the doctrine then. So you've got some Blavatsky in there. How, how does the doctrine come together? Is that something you're working on, Paul? Is Does it come well, from other sources? Doctrine, while I can claim a whole variety of sources, this really is also in part my reading of both ancient and modern Gnosticism. In at its core, it does not teach, you know, an ethical, moral paradigm. You know, I often say that when um, when spirit leaves the temple, you know, morality rushes in to fill the void. We're not a religion in any other sense, then we are just a way of living and getting to know oneself. Because the key of Gnosticism, ancient and modern, is know thyself. So what is that process for a person who joins your organization? You would start, uh, 
if you took our, our preparing for Gnosis course, you would see you would start with ruminations and diary keeping. Uh, it, you know, going through uh, your psychic issues. You know, again, somebody coming to any uh, conversion is coming for certain reasons. And in, in, a, in the case of Gnosis, they're finding something not valuable with traditional religion. But for us, we see also they still want to go to a church on Sunday. Communities still involve themselves with churches. And who is drawn to, to your church? So, so I, I think going back to what uh, Paul was saying earlier about how the church and the congregation itself is meant to celebrate genius, uh, our own genius and each other's genius, including the, the super mom, right? A super mom is worthy of admiration and respect. A woman who dedicated her life to her children and her family, that is her genius, right? That's what Paul was saying. She, she We would hope that she and her family would be drawn to our church just as much as intellectual scholars like yourself would be drawn to come and have dialogue like this with Paul and I. It is an open door and you're welcoming anyone who wants to study or anyone who wants to practice. I think right now we have a habit of attracting the intelligentsia due to our content, due to the nature of the conversation we're trying to have. It does at the moment draw a more cerebral archetype of people. Let's turn that, let's turn that over sideways just a little bit. Uh, you're a 30-something matriarch or patriarch in a family. You've got your 2.3 kids, and um, you want to give them spiritual instruction. So you go to your old, you know, little Christian denomination that you were you know, baptized in or what have you, and you come out feeling dirty. Um, you know, when you bowled your girlfriend at 16 in your dad's car, um, that's it. You were forbidden heaven already. You've, you know, committed one of the cardinal sins. Right. And then the child that came from that union, well, that child is filthy and it needs to be washed clean. And conveniently, we know the process by which to wash your child clean. Like, it's gross. The whole thing is gross. Well, more than gross, you come out feeling filthy, and you don't want to put your kids through this kind of spiritual torture. You went through it as a kid yourself. You want better for your family. So, you know, we want to offer a place of sanctuary. The idea coming that um, you come for a Eucharist, we give you a knowledge lecture. That's what we call the sermon. You have this Eucharist of the five elements, uh, which is just connecting with body, soul, spirit, air, earth, you know, that kind of thing. And um, and then we have this little uh, call and response thing where you get to participate and then you're read some other virtuous ideas. So what is a virtue? What's held up that? I mean, I, I, I hear the moral, you know, the, the, the gray area, right? There's a lot of gray area to travel in, but but what is the ideal? Okay, well, in one case, on one of um, the, some some Emerson quotes. <laughs> yeah. Well, in one case, you're know, part of the doctrine of the four yods, where we talk about, you know, um, integrity. You know, if if you look at all the little tiny sins, you know, I can slip that candy bar in my pocket at the at the store while I'm getting my morning coffee. They'll never know, you know. And you start doing all those little things. Eventually, they weigh on you. Um. 
in the same way, if you stop doing all those little niceties, you know, hold that door open and help the old lady cross the street. You know, um, these little things add up too and create virtue in your character. They build integrity. And so it's more of a practical instruction. How you view that is up to you in your experience. I don't know what it's like to walk in your shoes. So gnosis is in part about knowing or coming to understand your own moral system. It sounds like a bit of Thelema, right, does sneak in, right? This is, you know, do what thou wilt, you say, like a Crowleyite ethic at its best is that you study yourself, know your own will, and then do that will, yeah. not just... Do whatever that you that will is Schopenhauer's will. That will yeah. belongs to um, Nietzsche and to uh, Sartre. You know, it, it is a well-examined concept. Yeah, I, I don't think it's so solely the realm of Crowley. Yeah, Crowley definitely, I think, is a herald of that. And to say that Crowley is not cited or studied by people in our church would be a lie like of course he is but he's not the only one that talked about that he's certainly a messier one right than others (laughs) yes that's true for crowley we really use the holy books and the holy books are creating a new mythology in the same way carl jung's red book is creating a new mythology um in the same way blavatsky's secret doctrine creates new mythology new gnosis and that's the crowning achievement of the night monk of you know, the Gnostic Church, the member of the Astron Argon. Let me pose a, a challenge to you guys. Uh, let's imagine a scenario where a person comes into the church and, you know, contrary to your ethic, they don't have genius. They come to you, they say, I've thrown away my, my life, you know, I've been an alcoholic or, you know, I joined the conservative Christian church and I spent my whole life on this and I've just realized that this has been a waste of my time. I've, I've seen the light and, and yet every moment up till now has been a complete waste. What do you, how, what do we do with this person? We could possibly, I personally might recommend some therapy. I mean, I would tell anybody going into spiritual studies, you know, to do at least six months with a psychotherapist because you have to be nuts. Yeah. The, the outcasts, the misfits are a big, uh, part of the group that finds us, especially online. Um, Diagnosable mentally ill people also frequently find us. Um, We get, you know, schizophrenics or uh, people of all walks of life, people who claim to be vampires show up and it's it's very interesting. So is the word gnosis I mean, is that what's? I mean, you're, you're, Joe, you're talking about this um, interesting collection of people who gather. Is the word gnosis itself, you think, what's causing this in part? Um, I think it certainly could be. I've had this conjecture with Paul, um, you know, just in conversation and chatting about church business, about how certain symbols that are used, uh, certain words that are used are tied to a certain era of of western mystery tradition mythology right and i think more kind of back to paul's point there it's part of why developing new mythology is important because when you're developing new gnosis you're coming up with these new ideas and new ways to express them when people show up regurgitating nonsense to you um, or the ones who show up claiming to have magical powers or, or to speak to the dead or to 
aliens. Um, you know, you've got all sorts of interesting characters claiming to do all sorts of interesting things. Um, and while again, we, we greet everyone at the door with love, um, and we do our best to, to pen that in, uh, we will say, Hey, have you considered psychotherapy? That is a suggestion we will make an earnest effort to help people improve themselves. And once people realize that we're not just here to buy into whatever delusion that they're propagating that day because we use the word gnosis, they, they show themselves the door very quickly. They don't show up at the monthly service. My suggestion is more that if someone hasn't, if they're not happy with what they've done with their life, if they can't pin down, you know, something like motherhood and say, this is what I've spent my time doing, something worthwhile, if they feel that they've wasted their life, then what do they, how do we start them at square one? Oh, that's such a, it's, I mean, it's a great question. It's such a big question and there's so many approaches to it. Um, I don't know that the, the local or a local community church is, is the answer. You know, I think, yeah, it's, it's what's, what's the most important step a man can take. I think the answer is the next one. If you feel you've wasted every step until now, what is the next step? What's the most important one? So self-reflection in order to move forward. I mean, there's there's no other true way to move forward. If you don't choose it for yourself, if you let someone else pick that path for you. So let's pivot a little bit. Let's kind of take a look at how your community engagement has been. Something that, Joe, you and I had discussed a little bit prior to delving into this conversation is how the community has been reacting to you both in positive ways and in some more negative ways uh, we're located in uh Hoosick falls new york actually north Hoosick, but Hoosick falls is our mailing address uh just about six seven miles outside of bennington vermont in the uh, far end of the capital district of new york state um, I really came into this blind, made some significant mistakes in that regard, though I did nothing wrong. People around me were willing to do wrong. We've developed a false, bad reputation. Its own yellow press has been moving through the area and pretty much started because I got to tell you, the We Are group that operates in town has the ear of uh, the town authority. You know, they're placed in the public town hall for their meetings and they're considered legit so their complaints against us you know got our building attacked so there's multiple gnostic churches in this one small town why do you think that is what why is why are there why is there so much gnosticism in this small town i you know certainly there seems to be some you know unconscious collective force moving in the area that we're hoping to seize upon with the talisman that is our church building so so but now now we have conflict between the gnostic organizations in the town tell us more about that um even though Weor himself, I mean, he plagiarized just about everything and then put his own twist over it. But he, I've got all of his electronic documents, and they're numerous. Um, 
but he splintered off into two separate groups, somebody after his death. And, you know, uh, these two separate groups, I don't know which one operates in this area, whether that's two different groups or they're connected to the same old group. But there seems to be some connectivity because I used to attend the one in Saratoga. I used to attend their lectures. And I had just moved here. I'm looking to make some, you know, spiritual contacts, people with interests similar to mine. And I attend these lectures, and man, they twisted Gurdjieff with Beethoven, with um, every other major spiritual player you can mix, and they didn't talk about others that they mixed in. And it got to be that I started to see how sick these people are. And when I started reading up on them, I started learning about their issues with orgasm tying that to hell so that you're condemned in punishment. And it's like, this is just an extreme form of Christianity. So it's no matter that they would fit in when everybody knows everybody in this town. You know, this is my uh, where my wife grew up and now her mother lives over at this house and, you know, her uncle lives over here and, and, and my brother-in-law bought this farm over here. And, and I'm talking to the bus drivers. Now, my wife is now working at the restaurant 10 years into being here, uh, right around the corner from us. And they're owned by some of the people that, you know, came at us. And our reputation is getting cleaned up, but we've still suffered the economic loss. So what kind of things did they have to say about you? Oh, we do these services where the woman sits on the altar bleeding. Um, we, you know, the, the red exit lights above our doors that shine at night, well, because they're red, you know, that's the pit of hell being opened. You know, my wife and I will joke, we'll come home in the wintertime and we'll go, oh, come on, let's go in the church and rub our hands over the pit of hell. <laughs> um, Oh, so real satanic panic stuff then. Oh yeah, there was public accusations of Satanism. Yeah, we're yeah we they came on our Facebook group. You're dragging people straight to hell in a handbasket. It's interesting because you see, you know, especially when we think about small town America, we might see more intense Catholic groups or different, you know, branches of Christianity kind of driving forth this narrative, but not usually something, even though Wayors definition of Gnosticism is vastly different than yours. It's it's wild to see how much hate you have been receiving. Well, isn't um, the freedom without the proper moral structure to raise our kids in Jesus, isn't that fearful? You know, I, I, I teach in this town too. I'm a substitute school teacher. And when my business failed, I had to do something quick. Um, and like I'm driving home the other day through town and there's this car in front of me and it has like this uh, fractional equation and above it says faith and below it said fear. So a churchgoer here and probably in that fundamentalist church that's about 200 yards from us. Um, and, you know, I started to realize, you know, faith is built on fear. Your fear of death is going to drive you in common society to seek a security blanket. And the security blanket is Jesus. You're going to go to heaven when you die. Just be good. And, you know, notice at every funeral, everybody's going to heaven. And this is something we've talked about before on the show when we did our Christianity panel. There is a lot of if you do not live the exact image of in the image of God and you're not obeying these tenets of Christianity, you're going to hell. 
And you were taught that as a Christian from such an early age. Well, realize too, and this can start with something as simple as a little bit of intelligence, but um, what you're sacrificing for that security is sovereignty over your own thinking. You've been scared and conditioned into these thoughts to step out into the world of freedom where nothing is solid. I want to hear a bit more about Emerson. Connect for me Gnosticism and Emerson. Emerson was all about the self. He walked out of his um, uh, English uh, Orthodox uh, religion. The, uh, he walked out of his Anglican um, raising and he couldn't buy Jesus anymore. And he was a pastor there. And uh, he started looking for personal self, personal integrity. He started looking for very specific ideas that are Gnostic. And even him and Nietzsche were both well enamored of each other. They knew of each other. And um, their philosophies were very similar, but expressed in a different way. And and he his transcendentalism was American. He was trying to create create an American idea that wasn't that old European religion. Here we are, this new country. Here's a chance to seize the day, and create a mythos that belongs to us. That's American, us on this continent, no matter where we came from. Now, you know, on the same subject of the, of, I guess, doctrine and inspiration, take us back to the old Gnostics. How is the original Gnostic church, circa 100, 200, 300, inspiring what you guys are doing? Well, now, the old Gnostics, there are some things we have in common. This idea about morality. The old Gnostics didn't give you this moral teaching. But after that, you have to divide them all up into sects. And some of them were you know, going after Greek philosophy, while others were really Jewish, others were uh, Judeo-Greco, um, still others were Roman in their own way. And we can even tie in um, Josephus you know, into this whole creation of the New Testament that... Um, you know, might be going out on a little bit of a limb, but there's certainly something there. So you have all these different Gnostic sects, and they all had different um, metaphysical perceptions of the universe. So I hate today when I hear people say, well, the ancient Gnostics did, and it's all about the Demiurge, and blah, blah, blah. And like, no, it's not. The Sethians, you know, flirted with Jesus for a little while and then went back to Seth. You know, um, the places that the different sects came from, you know, the Valentinians had messengers of light delivering you the history of heaven. Um, and they relied really on the only, the way they tie into the Greek system is not directly through Greek philosophy, but they had the metaphysical view of the sky, which came into later Hermeticism. Um, the sky was a canopy. And there was something beyond that. The 12 constellations are just merely a canopy. That's a wall. And there's something beyond that. That's the pleroma, the fullness. Okay, whereas we're saying today the fullness is you, the fullness of your own self-pursuit of your own life. 
where can we find you guys? Um, we have the TikTok, we have the Instagram, we have the Reddit, of course. We have YouTube. Our YouTube channel has a whole variety of programs. We've recently condensed all of the things that he is referring to into a link tree that is ready available, readily available on all of the regular social media tabs that you can find. So um, what's our search terms when we go to these Instagram or YouTube or TikTok? Oh, Gnostic Church of LVX. There you go. Well, Paul, Joe, we want to thank you guys for this fantastic conversation. Uh, Much appreciated, guys. Thank you for taking the time here on A Call Confessions.